Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo. I'm the managing editor at BreastCancer.org. And today, it's a research news roundup podcast, and I'm joined by Dr. Brian Wojciechowski, BreastCancer.org's medical advisor. Hello, Dr. Wojciechowski. How are you today? I'm fine, Jamie. How are you? Great. We have um, a very interesting group of research news stories to talk about today. They are kind of all over the map, from exercise to sex to paying for your care to some new guidelines from ASCO and ASTRO. So uh, since we've got six stories to cover, I think we should just jump right in so we can get everybody the latest information. Um, The first story we have is one that sort of re-emphasizes something that we already knew, but it's always important to hear it again, and that's the fact that daily exercise reduces the risk of breast cancer. And now, I I know this isn't new news, and we've seen several stories like this before. Um, What... Is what can we tell people that's any? Is there anything different about this study, or is this kind of this the same thing and just in a different different shape, different uh, package? Well, this is certainly the biggest study that I've seen on the subject. Uh, you're talking about 37 studies combined into one here, with four million women involved and 114,000 cases of breast cancer. So if there was any doubt in anyone's mind about the value of exercise for preventing breast cancer, uh, this this study should really lay all of that to rest. Um, and it was a pretty significant benefit, a 12% lower risk of breast cancer. And well, if you take that and combine it with all the other non-breast cancer benefits of exercise, it presents a pretty compelling argument in favor of something we already know and, and of something that we as doctors always try to emphasize with our patients and which cannot be underemphasized is the importance of getting regular exercise. Definitely. And I know for a lot of people uh, who work outside the home, who maybe work two or three jobs even, or who have small children, time is a really big constraint on exercising. And one of the things we recommend on the site is trying to break up your exercise into maybe 20 or 30 minute chunks so maybe you have time to do a 20 minute walk in the morning or maybe you get to take a 20 minute break at work and you walk and then maybe you walk a little bit more after work with a friend because research has also shown that if you make plans to exercise with a friend you're accountable and you're more likely to do it and as a lot of ads have said the most important thing that this research shows is that you have to just do it and you have to get out there and you have to do something and walking is really easy all you really need is a pair of sneakers and you can start slowly you know and maybe maybe you can't do 30 minutes a day right at the beginning but maybe you could do five or ten and you work your way up the important thing is to do something so that's and we just keep getting more and more evidence that exercise really does help reduce risk and as you said It also gives us so many other benefits for our general overall health. So we're hoping that everyone out there is is doing some sort of exercise every day, right? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be all at the same time. You know, if you're getting a 15 or 20-minute walk with the dog in the morning and then maybe go out on your lunch break and then when you get home, uh, you know, take a walk in the evening, that counts just as good as uh, doing, doing it all in one hour, for example. Sure. Okay. 
Our next study uh, is a little bit more technical. This is uh, research on some new guidelines for tumor margins, and this came out from ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, as well as ASTRO, which is the American Society uh, for Radiation Oncology. And together, those two groups uh, put together a group of experts, and they said that tumor margins, and this is when um, a lumpectomy is performed, and these, the surgeon always tries to get a rim of healthy tissue around the cancer that's removed. And there have been some varying discussions on how wide that rim of healthy tissue needed to be. But these new guidelines say that they only need to be wide enough so ink is on the, there's no ink on the tumor. And for all of us who aren't surgeons, Brian, if you could kind of explain what that means. Yeah, so whenever you remove a cancer from the body, you want to make sure, first of all, that you've got all the cancer cells. So, you know, a, a positive margin can be anything where, you know, the, the cancer cells goes right to the edge of the sample and you think that there's probably cells left over in the body or even, you know, and this is where the, the controversy exists. Let's say you do get all the cancer cells out, but there's only a millimeter or two of healthy tissue um, in between the tumor and the end of your sample. Uh, that's what I would call a close margin, and there is some controversy over what constitutes a close margin. And you know, some physicians have said, you know, if if you're one millimeter there, if your margin is only a millimeter, uh, that's too close for comfort. So uh, many of the women getting lumpectomies have to go back in for a re-excision. And Jamie, you can imagine that this is a very stressful event in the course of a woman's breast cancer treatment to go sure get to get mentally prepared for surgery and go through all that and then to be told you have to go back and get a second operation really because we're uh, not sure that we got it all which is a little that's bit, right that's pretty scary that's right it's pretty scary and pretty stressful for a patient and also it it it, it delays the time uh to when a woman can get her systemic treatment like chemotherapy or hormones or even radiation. Okay. So this is not an ideal situation where we're going back and uh, doing another operation. Okay. And now these new margins, if I, or these new guidelines, excuse me, if I'm understanding them correctly, it, it says that a, a millimeter of margin is okay as long as there is no ink. And from what I understand, so when they, when a, a a surgeon removes a tumor, a cancer, it's then rolled in some special ink so they can see which cells are cancerous and which cells are healthy? Is yes. Okay. Well, it, it's not quite like that. Oh, what okay. it is is they take the tumor and roll them in ink, and then the tumor goes to the lab and gets sectioned, so it gets cut into very small pieces. And when you look at the cells under the microscope after a very, very thin slice of the tumor has been made, uh, you can then see the ink that was put on the sample at surgery. So, you know, if you look under there and you see that there's ink on the tumor cells themselves, you know that at the edge of that sample, the tumor cells were sitting there. So there would, there would be a very good chance that you left some tumor cells 
in the breast that you took it out of. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. And okay. And so these new guidelines then are saying as long as there's no ink on a tumor cell, no matter how small that margin, it's it's okay. Yes, and and also no matter what the biology of the tumor, whether it was triple negative or HER2 positive or ER positive, that it, that it doesn't matter. So as long as you're looking under the microscope and you're seeing that there's ink and then next to the ink there's healthy cells and then next to the healthy cells there's tumor cells, that that's okay even if it's under a millimeter and that the woman does not have to go back in for another surgery. Oh, that's good. So it sounds like this will sort of clear up um or, or may or standardize, I should say, is a better term. Standardize what people are looking at as far as margins, and may save a number of women from having another surgery. I think that is the bottom line, Jamie. And if these guidelines are wide uh, are widely accepted and incorporated into practice, then definitely many many women who otherwise would have gotten another operation will end up not getting that second operation. I know that my institution is looking at these uh, very closely right now and will probably be changing our practice uh, pretty soon. Okay. Because these two institutions, ASCO and ASTRO, are both very well-known and very esteemed professional organizations. So when they put out guidelines, almost everybody pays attention. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Great. So that's that's some good news. Um our next study is not so good news. Um, research was done on the economics of paying for treatment, and it was found that about a quarter of the women who are diagnosed with breast cancer go into debt to pay for their treatment. And some of them said they had to give up their home. Some of them they were said they were doing without things, such as like they weren't paying their utility bills because they needed to pay their medical bills, all of which is very disturbing and upsetting because people should have access to care. That's exactly right, and we know, and I've seen it in my own practice, that uh, financial problems can interfere with care and, you know can delay the time that it takes a woman to get the right treatment and even affect her ability to continue on her treatments. So it's a big problem. Yes, and we know, we've seen other studies too, where it says that if you delay your treatment longer than a certain number of days, it can affect survival, recovery, recurrence, all sorts of things. So while the study just sort of lays that information out there. It doesn't really offer any way to change that. And what we suggest on our site, we have a section called Day-to-Day Matters, and under Day-to-Day Matters, there's an area called Paying for Your Care. And there are all sorts of links and information about what to do if you are having problems paying for your care. Most of the big pharmaceutical companies have... Uh, assistance lines that you can call if you're getting a specific treatment that you can't afford. You can contact the company that makes it and they will almost always have an assistance line or an assistance program that you can get into that will either pay for the, the medicine or give you a significant discount. There are also links and information to 
other groups that help people pay for their medical care. So the bottom line is check out those links, ask your doctor for information, ask your local community services um, organizations for information because you do need to get that care and it should not be a financial burden. So please, please check out that information on our website. Yeah, and don't be ashamed to seek help. Definitely. There's no, it's not a shameful thing. Right, and most people are very eager to help out financially, family members, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, really important issue. Definitely. Um, Now, the next study we're going to look at focused on older women who um, had survived breast cancer. I believe they had been diagnosed about 10 or 15 years beforehand. And it was looking at some sexual issues. And we know, at least from um, uh, the topics on our discussion board, as well as some of the posts on our Facebook page, that sexuality issues can be a big problem for some women during diagnosis, through treatment, and even after treatment. Um, They've said that there's less interest in sex, sex may become painful, and this study was kind of looking at all those things, and it found that while older survivors were having less sex compared to women who hadn't been diagnosed, the problems that they reported were about the same. So in a sense, if, if I guess I kind of want to look at the silver lining here, um, it's a little bit encouraging to know that women who've been diagnosed diagnosed with breast cancer don't have different sexual problems than other older women. I guess that's one encouraging thing. Although the study itself, you know, saying that older women who'd been diagnosed were having less sex, that's a little bit, I guess, disappointing and could be Mm -hmm. upsetting. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, this study kind of just looked at the facts that laid it out there. It didn't really say, okay, what do we need to do to solve this problem? Well, I think with this particular issue, it's it's awareness that is the first step because this is something that many women are not comfortable bringing up and many doctors are not comfortable talking about with their patients. So I think we could do a lot to help by just being aware of it and uh, not hesitating as physicians and patients to to bring these issues up. And certainly there are doctors that specialize in these issues, and so if as a woman, you don't feel comfortable talking to your oncologist or maybe your regular doctor, It's ask for a referral. Again, it's you're, you're not going to get help unless somebody knows there's a problem. So you don't have to go into a lot of specifics, but you can just say, I'd like a referral to a doctor that specializes in some of these issues. And, and I'm sure most physicians would be happy to give that referral. Yeah, life goes on, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's see. Now, our next study, again, this is kind of, uh, this study, I believe the results have the potential to be practice changing. It was looking at whether or not radiation was beneficial after mastectomy. And this in women who it was found to have one to three positive lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. And I guess before we go into it, Brian, if you could just explain to us again, what does it mean to have a positive lymph node? So... With mammograms today and screening, most of the breast cancers we diagnose are early stage and are not yet in the lymph nodes. But uh, the first place that a breast cancer usually spreads 
when it spreads outside the breast is the lymph nodes under the armpit. So that's what we refer to when we talk about a positive lymph node. That's when the cancer has spread to the lymph nodes under the armpit. Okay. And I know there's been some controversy. Some results of earlier studies showed that radiation after mastectomy was beneficial if there were one to three positive nodes, and some showed no benefits. And in the past, or I, I guess in, it, I, it's co- sort of commonly thought that if a woman had a mastectomy, it was pretty much unlikely that she'd need radiation because the entire breast was being removed. Yeah, but let's make a distinction between radiation to the breast alone and radiation to the axilla. Okay. Okay. So, yes, typically when a woman is deciding between mastectomy, which is removal of the whole breast, versus lumpectomy, just getting the tumor removed, uh, she might be factoring in that that not needing radiation if she gets the whole breast removed. And that's true. When you have the breast removed, you generally don't need radiation to the breast, or or, or I should say to the area uh, that was left behind. But when a doctor does a mastectomy, uh, she's looking at the lymph nodes and seeing if there's any cancer there. And if there's more than four nodes involved in the armpit, then you know, then it's definitely, it's a no-brainer. You have to get radiation uh, to that to that whole area. Where the controversy exists is what if there's only one to three nodes that are positive for, um, uh, for, for cancer? And that's where the practice has not really been uniform. Some women at that point will get radiation. Some will get a full dissection where they take all the lymph nodes out um so that's an area of controversy and you know if a woman's getting lymph nodes removed surgically and radiation to that area there's certainly going to be a higher risk of lymphedema uh, a higher risk of cancers later later in life decades later which we know is a is a risk with with anyone getting radiation okay and this study was trying to clear up that controversy and it it seems like it it did in that it it was it, it was a meta-analysis so it was looking at all the a lot of earlier studies and it found that if you if there are one to three positive nodes then radiation is beneficial that's right that this, this study didn't this study did not identify a group of women with positive lymph nodes that didn't benefit from radiation so it, the suggestion here is that even after mastectomy, any woman with any positive lymph nodes should have radiation to the axilla. Now, here's the bugaboo about the study. Uh, the latest group of women that were enrolled in this trial started in 1986. So, you know, the, the women studied in this trial received their uh, diagnosis and surgery anywhere from 1964 286 and then were followed over time so you know that's that's an eternity in terms of breast cancer treatment so for example since 1986 uh, chemotherapy has improved hormone therapy has improved surgical techniques have improved and yes radiation techniques have improved as well so 
you know, with better hormones and better chemo and better surgical techniques, uh, we are going to eliminate a lot of the late recurrences anyway. So it's hard to see exactly how this applies to our practice today. So while it does have the potential to change practice, or at least to uh, to suggest that a study, a modern study, should be done. I'm not sure if this really fully clears up the controversy about women with one to three positive nodes after mastectomy uh, getting radiation or not. I can tell you. I can tell you one thing though. It will. It will spur a lot of debate. Okay. So in your um, hospital and practice, you're not necessarily going to change what you do, but you'll be looking at this study and kind of waiting to see if another study is done? Well, I think, I, I think I'm going to take this into account, but it's not, I don't think it's going to make me automatically say that every woman with one to three positive nodes after mastectomy should get uh, radiation. I, I mean, I, I think that, I think we're giving some of those patients radiation. Okay. S- some of them are getting uh, lymph node dissection and we leave it at that. Um, but you know, it, it definitely gives me pause and I will definitely consider the results of this study, but I don't think it's practice changing at the moment. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. And certainly anyone who is diagnosed and the pathology report comes back and shows that that's something to discuss with your oncologist, with your surgeon and, and take into account your personal preferences as well. And yeah, and, and especially the radiation oncologists. Okay, yep. Um, and then our last study to talk about today, there's an experimental medicine called palbocyclib, and research came out. Now, this was a phase two study, which makes it an early study. It's not necessarily going to be on the market soon, um, or like tomorrow, I should say. It's going to be several years. But it found that the combination of pavocyclib and Femera, which is a hormonal therapy, was improving progression-free survival um, of advanced stage estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. And Brian, if you could talk a little bit about, before we get into the specifics of the research, what exactly is progression-free survival and... I know there's been some controversy over whether improving that is enough for a medicine to come to market. So the gold standard for efficacy of a, of a cancer drug is overall survival. And if a drug has an overall survival benefit, that means that the women who took the drug actually lived longer than the women who did not take the drug. Okay. And it's not... It's it's self-evident why that should be the ideal. Sure. Now, some drugs are shown to improve progression-free survival and not overall survival. So that means that for the women who took the drug, they went longer without their cancer growing or needing a new treatment than women who did not take the drug. But in the end, there was no difference in when those women died. So... They didn't live any longer. They just lived longer without their cancer progressing. Okay. And, you know, you could ask, well, if the women lived longer without the cancer progressing, 
why did they not live longer overall? And the reason is complicated. It, it, it may be that the drug just doesn't make you live longer. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that, you know, these women are, are women with uh, metastatic breast cancer, and they will have seen many different treatments during the course of the disease, not just, uh, not just the study drug. And many studies include something called crossover, where even if a woman does not get on the arm in the study where you get the drug initially, she could be eligible to get the drug later when she progresses. So it's possible that that woman catches up with the women who get the drug in the, in the front line and end up living the same amount of time overall. So, you know, just because a drug does not improve overall survival, but it, it doesn't mean it's not effective because, uh, you know, it, it, it can still improve progression-free survival. So, uh, you know, I, I think that would matter to a woman with stage four breast cancer to, you know, to be alive longer where she does, her disease is not progressing and she doesn't have to switch her medication, even if she's, even if the end, she's living the same amount of time. Sure. And now this was a phase two study, which mm -hmm. means that it's looking at how um, effective the drug is. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, th there's, there's basically three phases. Phase one is where uh, you're giving the drug to women who really have no other option and uh, you're giving them different doses just to see what the safe dose is. So okay. really, not, really not an effectiveness study. Okay. Phase three is the opposite end of the spectrum where it's a large number of women and there's, they're randomized to an arm where they get the drug and they're randomized to an arm where they don't get the drug. And you're comparing uh, the outcomes. So phase two is sort of somewhere in the middle. You know, sometimes... Uh, phase two studies can have two arms where one arm gets the drug and one arm does not. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they have just one arm, but uh, they're usually bigger than phase one studies and they're smaller than phase three studies. And the, safe, the safety and effectiveness of the drug is usually already established by the time you get to phase two. But typically the regulatory organizations like the FDA are going to want to see phase three data before they approve a drug. There have been exceptions, and this drug could be an exception, but we're all going to be kind of waiting on the edge of our seats until they make their decision. Okay, and from what I understand, there are phase three trials underway for palbociclib, um, com uh, combining it with Femera and then also, I think, Fazlidex, which is another type of hormonal therapy. That's correct. Okay. And so if, if anybody out there listening is diagnosed with advanced stage estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative disease, and you're, you know, you're kind of running through the standard uh, treatments, maybe the disease has stopped responding to those and you're interested in potentially trying this, um, you would have to be in a clinical trial to be given palbociclib right now. And the, the best way to figure out that is you can talk to your doctor and see if there are clinical trials in your area that might be a good fit, or you can go to the breastcancer.org website and under um, the treatment tab, we have a section on clinical trials and you can go to the government website 
and figure out where they are. Usually phase three trials are, are very large, hundreds of thousands of women, and they're done in several sites, sometimes even internationally, because uh, the regulators really wanna be sure that whatever this new medication is, that it's, it's better than what we have now. Because I know in talking to some researchers who work on drug development, if there's a medicine out there that maybe is just as good as what is, is what's out there now, it may not necessarily get to market because it's not better and there's no real incentive to get it out there. That's exactly right. And it's usually a lot more expensive than the Right, and that's the other thing because away, yeah. things that have been out for a while, like tamoxifen, they're generic, so they're less expensive for the patients um, to buy. So it's the new stuff that's still on patent that's much more expensive. And certainly when pavlocyclib, if it does get approved by the FDA, then it would probably be more expensive than some of the current standard treatments. Um, and, but still, it's very exciting. Always, always good to um, be finding new treatments for advanced stage disease because a lot of research effort goes into early stage disease. And I know sometimes people diagnosed with advanced stage disease feel like there's not a lot of new treatments for them out there. So this is pretty exciting news. And again, if you are, if this medicine might help you, you would have to be in a clinical trial and you need to talk to your doctor and figure out if there's a good fit for you. Yeah. And this, this drug is, this drug has the potential to create a very big impact. I mean, you know, three different companies right now are, are, are working on a version of this drug with, uh, this drug is made by Pfizer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. With Pfizer's drug sort of being in the lead right now. Uh, the, the benefit was, was preliminarily looks pretty striking and it, it has the potential to have a huge impact because the indication is frontline metastatic disease. So, any woman with stage four disease uh, beginning her treatment, which is about 50,000 women a year in the United States, uh, would be eligible to take this drug in combination with Femara uh, when it gets approved. And it is a targeted therapy, so it's not chemo, mm -hmm. and it is a pill, so it's not an IV drug. And, you know, the, the side effects are, are pretty manageable. So we're going to keep a very close eye on this drug, and it's, it's, tr it's trekked through uh, the approval process because uh, it's very exciting and potentially would have a very big impact. Sure. And now, has have you heard anything about this, uh, about Pavlocyclib being fast-tracked for a fast approval? I have not, but I, I, so I, I just wondered if you had. Uh, no, but of course, there's a lot of speculation. Okay. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep everybody updated on that as, if we hear anything else. Um, is there anything else on any of these studies you want to add, Brian? I think that's all I have, Jamie. Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been the BreastCancer.org podcast, our research news roundup for the month of April. Um, our medical expert, Dr. Brian Wojciechowski, gave us his excellent comments on what's going on. We hope you all tune in. And again, thank you for listening. Thank you.